Amen. Well, good morning, church. If you would go to 1 Timothy chapter 4. We have made our way to 1 Timothy chapter 4. Pick up where we left off last week, jumping into verse 1. This is the word of the living God. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. And so, Lord, again, we thank You for this text. We pray for Your Spirit's help. Lord, help us to see the glory of Christ. Help us to see, Lord, how we are to receive good gifts from Your hand and bring You glory. We ask that You would use this time now to build up Your church. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. Well, after spending the last few weeks in uh, chapter 3 of 1 Timothy, as we come into this first section of chapter 4, there's a tone of optimism, right? Uh, Paul has uh, laid down instructions for how the church is to be, behave itself after the apostles uh, go on and be with the Lord. He's given the qualifications for the two offices that are to govern and lead in the church until Jesus returns Uh, He's revealed the identity of the church in the earth as the pillar and buttress of the truth. And he concludes it all by giving us what he calls the mystery of godliness and then recording this incredible confession about Christ that we've spent the last few weeks studying and looking at. So there's a strong optimism about the church's success and existence. There's spiritual foundations, there's apostolic foundation and structure, and there's a great reason for Timothy, uh, the recipient of this letter, uh, to be encouraged and to be strong and courageous. And I think if we were to just sit down and read First Timothy in one sitting, uh, we would come out of chapter 3 uh, feeling very encouraged and very uh, good about the uh, success and the state of the church moving forward. However, chapter 4, verse 1 marks a sharp contrast. As he says in verse 1, again, this is on the hills of this incredible confession about Christ. And the next thing he says, now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart, me, apostatize from the faith. So what's important to point out here is this is not just Paul's personal opinion. Uh, this is not just Paul's view of the state of the church. You know how in every, in every age, every year, there are those people that just say, you know what, we've got to be in the end. 
This has got to be it. Jesus, it's so bad out there that Jesus has just got to be returning soon. We're, we're in the last days. You know how everybody's always saying that? That's not what Paul is doing here. Rather, he is landing this reality about this coming departure in the fact that the Spirit, the Spirit of God, has revealed this to be the case. And so Paul could be referring to uh, personal revelations that the Spirit has given him. And we see similar phrases in other Pauline literature throughout the New Testament. It could be that Paul has revealed this to another prophet and that Paul has been made aware. Or it very well could be the case that Paul is referring to Old Testament texts or Old Testament prophecies that he interprets as teaching that there will be this apostasy, this departure from the faith. Uh, He could be referring to something Jesus said in his ministry. Whatever the case this later falling away is a time yet in the future. And we won't get into all the nuances of how one could understand the phrase in later times because I don't want us to get carried away from the main point. Uh, The point is that Paul knows as optimistic as he is about the future of the church, as optimistic as Timothy should be about the future of the church, he knows via revelation that the future will not be without difficulty. It will be hard. There will be apostates. There will be those who depart from the true faith. And I taught about apostasy rather extensively when we were in chapter 2, but I think saying a few things in review would be helpful. You know, what do we mean by apostasy? Well, we mean simply this, that, that there will be individuals and even institutions, religious institutions, that will depart from the true faith about Christ. Uh, They will depart from the content of the confession from chapter 3 that we just spent three weeks going over and studying. They will depart from the mystery of godliness, which we know is the person, the real person, the biblical person of Jesus Christ. And many things could be said, but at the heart of apostasy is just that. It's a departure from the truth about Christ. And while this apostasy will manifest itself long after Paul is gone, he can already feel it and hear it in his own day. And we get now a sort of return back to chapter 1. Remember when Paul was encouraging and exhorting Timothy to go and exhort certain persons, as he calls them, who have already begun to swerve from the true faith and have begun to, in the church, teach a different doctrine. And so brothers and sisters, uh, listen to me. As optimistic as we should be about the success of the Gospel in the earth, and as optimistic as we should be about the victory of the church, and as optimistic as you are about the rest of of history, and I have publicly argued that the Scriptures give us ample warrant to to be optimistic about the success of the Gospel in all the nations, and the growth of the kingdom of God, and the growth of the church, we've argued that. However, we must realize that in this age, simultaneously, at the same time, as the Gospel goes forth, as Jesus brings in His elect from all the nations and builds His glorious temple, at the same time, there will also be individuals and institutions under the name of religion and even under the name of Christianity that will depart from the faith. 
It will be a reality. And when we look at the first 400 years of church history up to the Council of Chalcedon, and even after that, the church was just fraught with heresy. And when we look at the last 2,000 years, heresy after heresy, attack on the gospel after attack on the gospel, and we're still battling these attacks today. Apostasy has been a consistent theme from the apostolic age until now. And when we look at our landscape today, just under the, the guise of general Christianity, I mean, you think about it, we have Roman Catholicism, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, a Pentecostal oneness, Unitarian sects. And if we just take one step over and consider Islam, and I agree with John Frame, who argues that Islam is a Christian cult because it departs from the biblical scriptures, the, the, the scriptures that God gave us, and it has a faulty, false view of Jesus. If we just consider those four or five groups, we're talking about hundreds of millions possibly billions of people who have departed from the truth about Christ and who are beguiled by what Paul calls teachings of demons. And in a very real sense, we could say that as the church grows, and it will, and as it's successful, and it will be, that at the very same time, apostate religions grow as well. And this makes sense in light of our Lord's parable of the weeds or the tares in Matthew chapter 13, 24 through 30 in its subsequent explanation. And so in the explanation of that parable, the Lord tells us that in this age, simultaneously there will be a growth of weeds or tares. Jesus says they're the sons of the devil, people that the devil has sown, that they will grow up at the same time as the wheat who Jesus calls the sons of the kingdom. And they will grow up together until the end of the age. What Jesus calls the harvest. And at the harvest, Jesus says that He will send His angels and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. And here's what's interesting. The weeds that the original audience would have thought about when they heard that parable would have looked very similar to wheat until they reached maturity and then you would have been able to tell what's a weed and what's a wheat. And so we would be utterly foolish guys to think about tares or weeds as only the atheists. You know, the guys that are in college classrooms just working as hard as they can to get people not to believe in God. Or the secularists. Or you know, you have the, the vision of the the people out in the streets marching and yelling and screaming and boasting about their abortions and all these things. Those are tares. Those are weeds. But we would be foolish not to understand that under the guise of Christianity, there will be tares. And there will be weeds. There will be those who depart from the true faith and they will grow up with the wheat. They will grow up alongside the true church until the end of the age when the Lord will return to His harvest and separate the weeds from the wheat. And He says the wheat He will gather into His barn, but the weeds will be burned with an unquenchable fire. And look down at this text with me. How will some depart from the faith? 
they will depart by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. And what will the message of these demonic teachings be? It will not be a message produced by the Spirit. It will be a message produced by the devil. And he says, teachings of demons, or like the old uh, translations say, doctrines of devils. Doctrines not produced out of well-grounded exegesis of the biblical text, but doctrines produced by demons. Teachings that are not true, but deceitful. How will these deceptive demonic teachings be propagated so as to lead more and more people astray? Well, he says in verse 2, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Uh, People will depart from the faith about Christ as they devote themselves to demonic teachings that are being propagated by false teachers who are under the influence of Satan. And this text gives us a glimpse into the psychology of false teachers, and I think we could even say the psychology of apostasy. Apostasy happens when people love their sin and continue to pursue their sin over against what the Bible says is wrong and what their conscience says is wrong. And they pursue it and pursue it and pursue it until their conscience becomes deadened and hardened. Or people pursue false teaching in a rejection of the truth about Christ until their conscience becomes hardened. You know, if you've ever had the misfortune of burning yourself severely, you know that after after a time that skin becomes deadened and it can even become hardened and it can't feel anymore. It's useless. It's dead. As people reject the truth about Christ and press on into falsehood and into ungodliness, their conscience becomes deadened so that they cannot feel the conviction of the Spirit any longer. Paul describes these people later in a similar context in 2 Timothy 3, 12-13. He says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. And you could also think about, you could render this phrase, in the same vein as, as the conscience as the object with, with an actor doing the searing. So the conscience is the thing being seared. That's why many translations translate this seared as with a hot iron or seared as with a branding iron. The, the imagery is that these false teachers' consciences have been seared by someone. And the verse is passive, but uh, the context I think leads us to the conclusion the person doing the searing is the devil. These apostates are slaves of the devil just in the same way that the apostles called themselves slaves of God, slaves of Christ. These apostates are slaves of the devil. And so instead of of teaching the Spirit's doctrine, they teach the devil's doctrine. Instead of having the seal of God on their foreheads, they have been branded with the devil's iron. The devil has seared his stamp upon their conscience so that they press on thinking that they're right 
teaching false things and leading millions astray. It's the reality. Now, this text, however, does not suggest that these false teachers are just outwardly evil and sort of outwardly rebellious and wicked. The text suggests that these teachers have seared their conscience in a different way. How? Through legalism. Through legalism. Through going beyond God's Word in their religious exercise to the point of actually rejecting God altogether. Legalism turns people away from the simplicity of the Gospel and the sincerity of faith into extra-biblical rules and regulations that supposedly ensure greater godliness and greater knowledge of God. And he says this in verse 3, they forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. And so when most of us, when we read the text and we read doctrines of devils or teachings of demons and deceitful spirits, you know, we would expect Paul to describe some really ugly things. You know, you might expect Paul to describe, uh, you know, like witch doctors and maybe you think about the scariest movies you've seen. Uh, you know, you remember the, the, the heavy metal bands from a few years ago and they would wear these really ugly, scary masks and all this stuff. You would think about that. Paul doesn't give us that example. He gives us the example of those who forbid marriage and forbid people to eat foods that God has created to be enjoyed. It's really, an, it's really interesting. His example is those who go beyond God's Word to propagate godliness. To go beyond God's Word to really know God. To really <coughs> be holy. Rather, uh, and he says in verse 4, uh, everything is everything created by God is good. Everything declared to be good by God is good. And so one of Satan's primary ways in leading people away from Christ is to get them focused on and infatuated with a bunch of regulations and a bunch of rules and a bunch of religious things that God never sanctions in an attempt to be godly in an attempt to be spiritual. And in doing so, we miss Christ and the simplicity of Christ. And we, because of our pride and arrogance as sinful humans, we often default into this system of don't touch, don't taste, don't handle, and we think if we don't, that we're godly. And that we're holy. And that we're doing pretty good. Rather, we were rather than receiving good gifts from God and enjoying them for His glory. And one could argue that we see this all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. You remember in, in Genesis 2, 6, 16 and 17, God says to Adam, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So that's clear. If you eat of the fruit, you will die. Yet, when Satan comes to Eve and intentionally misconstrues God's Word, 
Eve says to him something interesting. She says, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the trees that is in the midst of the garden. And here it is. Neither shall you touch it. Lest you die. Now, I don't want to speculate too much over that because scholars disagree about how we should understand Eve's insertion of that phrase. Neither shall you touch it. But at the very least, we have to admit that as far as we know from what's been revealed, God never said not to touch the fruit. He never said that. He said, don't eat of it. But He never said, you shall not touch it. So it could be that Adam, who received that command before Eve was created, added some extra precautionary measures for Eve to guard her from eating the fruit. Or it could be that Eve, in her attempt to add her own precautionary measures in, the, in, in uh, going back and forth with Satan, added that phrase in. Whatever the case may be, what's the conclusion? Adding to God's Word extra commands does not help in the fight against sin. It doesn't help. It does not help. This is exactly what Paul warns the church of Colossae about at the end, end of Colossians 2. And I want to read this for us because it's so relevant to our topic. And so after giving them these glorious truths about how their sin debt has been nailed to the cross of Christ and how God has made alive the Colossians together with the Jews, he says this, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reasons by his sensuous mind, and here it is, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. You see Paul's concern. God has saved you. He's made you alive together with the Jews. He's risen you up with Christ. He's nailed your sin debt to the cross. Don't get caught up in all these do's and don'ts and this, that, and that. And then he goes on and says, if Christ, or if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? And he says, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, in quotes, referring to the things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. And he says, these indeed have an appearance of wisdom, an appearance of wisdom, in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. But listen, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Extra-biblical rules and regulations and extra-biblical spiritual experiences, I don't care how fascinating they are, are of no value in an actual fight against sin in the actual putting to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit. On the contrary, they lead people away from Christ and His Gospel and they just puff people up with pride. They just puff people up with pride. 
And just as rejecting the moral commands of Scripture and pressing on into sin sears the conscience, rejecting the truth and the simplicity of the Gospel and adding to the Word of God to be religious sears the conscience. It's amazing. Paul has this concern for the Corinthians when he says, but I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. And guys, I know the reality. Many of us have grown up in a system like this. Uh, We're like a pinball. We bounce back and forth between antinomianism on the one hand, everything goes, no concern for holiness, but yet way over here on the other side, what do we hear? If you really want to be holy, you won't do that. Uh, the, the Bible may give freedom for that. The Bible may not explicitly condemn that. You know, there may be freedom for other Christians to do that, but if you really want the Spirit to work through you, you won't do that. If you really want to be godly, you'll say no to that thing or you'll do this thing. It's confusing. Because holiness, rather than being defined as growing into conformity to the Christ, the Son is often made synonymous with this don't touch, don't taste, don't handle mentality. And we, and we deduce holiness down to just what we don't and do do. Rather than actually conforming to the image of Christ. And Paul says this kind of thing does not actually help in the fight against the flesh. So, how do we guard ourselves against legalism? Ever thought about that? We make Scripture the final authority in defining sin and defining obedience. Amen? We make Scripture not our emotions, not our feelings, not some religious leader, Scripture, the final authority in defining sin and defining Christian obedience. That's what Paul does in verse 3. He says, God created. How does Paul know that marriage is a good thing? Because God's Word says it is. Who created marriage? God did. Who, Who gave the man a wife? God did. Who said it's not good for man to be alone? God said that. God gives marriage to His people, to His creatures to enjoy, to glorify Him. Does the Bible ever forbid marriage? No. It does not forbid marriage. God created marriage and sexual relations, which is what I really think Paul is getting into, within biblically defined marriage for the enjoyment and the good of the husband and the wife and so that the world can be filled with image bearers for His glory. Now, that doesn't mean there's never a reason or a season of life that uh, one would not want to get married. Uh, There are biblical texts that suggest that to be the case. But the overall attitude toward marriage is that it is a good thing given by God for our enjoyment and for His glory. And so to reject marriage, uh, to require abstinence from marriage, is to reject the very thing that God gave to fill the earth with His image bearers. To reject the very thing that, that shows the Gospel. It's a teaching of demons. 
Same thing with food. How do we know that food is good? God reveals it to be. Genesis 1.29, Then God said, Behold, I have given you every seed-bearing plant on the face of, the, of all the earth and every tree whose fruit contains seed. They will be yours for food. What about meat? Genesis 9.3, Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. And so guys, what could be missing from many of you in your pursuit of godliness could be this very thing. You have not learned how to enjoy God's good gifts, the good things that He has created with a clear conscience so as to bring Him glory and to build yourself up and to build up others around you. You have not learned how to eat and drink to the glory of God. And so, what's, what, what do we do? We either abstain for the wrong legalistic reasons, or we sin with the things that we should be enjoying for His glory, which leads to more shame and more guilt, which usually leads to legalism. Or perhaps you're perpetually struggling with purity because you have not learned how to delight in the spouse that God has given you to delight in. God has given gifts to His people to enjoy and they are not to forbid them as if by doing so will lead to greater godliness or greater spiritual knowledge. Rather, they are to receive them with thanksgiving from Him. Verse 4, He says, Nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. Again, that doesn't mean there's never a time for, for abstaining from something. There is. That doesn't mean that we have freedom to just eat and drink and do whatever we want with no law, no constraint. That's not what Paul is arguing for. The point is that nothing that God created as good to be enjoyed should be rejected on the grounds that it is evil. And that if we reject it, we will achieve to greater holiness. That's the point. Guys, the motive and the heart posture in which we eat or drink or partake or don't partake really matters. The motive and the heart posture really matters. The substance of the gift is not the issue. The gifts are good. The gifts have been created by God and are good. The issue is how we receive them and then what we do with them. The issue is our hearts. The corruption of our hearts. 1 Corinthians 10.25-29 Paul says to the Gentile Corinthians, eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. That would have been crazy for them to hear. Coming out of paganism and idolatry. He says, eat anything in the meat market without raising an issue on the ground of conscience. Why? For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. He says, if one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. It's amazing. But what does he say? But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. So Paul, the Pharisee of Pharisee, he understands this. 
He understands that meat, whether it's been sacrificed to a false god or not, is just meat. And if you receive it with thanksgiving from the hand of God, it is to be received with a good gift, as a good gift. But if someone says to you, hey, that meat was actually sacrificed to a pagan deity, he says, don't eat it. Not because the meat's somehow evil or is going to make you sick, but because of the people around you, you may be implicitly, without even trying to, validating a wor- the worship of a pagan deity. So if he says to you it's been sacrificed to a false god, don't eat it. Not because your conscience will be messed up, but, but for his sake. You see, the, you see what Paul's doing here. His issue is not with the meat. His concern is always for loving his brother. Doing what's good for his brother. Not causing his brother to stumble. Romans 14.17 For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. What about fasting? You know, we have ample warrant in the Scripture to suggest that Christians will fast in the New Covenant. Yet again, the motive matters. Jesus says on the Sermon on the Mount, Uh, He denounces fasting as a means to appear godly before others. So it's actually possible to fast and pray and give to the poor and not receive any spiritual reward or benefit because you're not doing it for the glory of God, but you're doing it to appear godly before others. And Jesus says, if you do that, you've already got your reward. That, That little measly... A uh, measly gain that you get from the people that see you, that, that's your reward. Romans 14.6 The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. And in verse 5 For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. You know, we hear we hear so often, you know, the church shouldn't be like the world. You know, we're we're in the world, but we're not of the world. And that's certainly true. The Bible warns us against worldliness. We can't be friends of the world and be children of God. That's very clear. Uh, But we've confused this over the last century or so. And we've deduced worldliness again down to don't taste, don't touch, don't handle. And so not to be worldly is just to not go to a movie theater. Or not to do X or Y or Z. And however, the Bible speaks of the world in the evil negative sense. When it does that, it's not talking about God's creation. It's not talking about His good gifts that He's made. It's talking about this fallen, demonic, spirit of the age that opposes Christ's value system in His teaching. It's a value system. It's a system of commitments that says, we hate Christ. We're going to pervert the things that He's given us and use them for sin rather than His glory. That's worldliness, not His creation. And so while the world uses food and sex and alcohol and money and possessions and entertainment and sports as a means of selfish pleasure and idolatry, uh, Christians can think about all these things biblically 
and, and receive them from God with thanksgiving and use them for their pleasure and for the pleasure of others and for the glory of God. That's how we can not be like the world. That's how we can be in God's world, but not of the world. And again, the, pas- uh, the focus of this passage, at least, is on marriage, and I, and I think particularly sexual relations in marriage, and food. And so what categories does the enemy try to pervert more than sex and food? I mean, we could probably name a few, but those are at the top of the list. Yet the Bible consistently speaks of these things as good gifts from God for the enjoyment of His people to be used for His glory, for the advancement of the kingdom. Now, the Bible does warn us against sinful uses of sex and food, but guys, think about this. Think about how much of a light the church could be in this dark, wicked, evil world if we would receive God's gifts as good gifts and use them the way that He's called us to use them and glorify Him in the earth, Think about the light that we would shine. The Bible does warn about overindulgences. It speaks about self-denial. It speaks about self-control. Pastor John Mark will get into that next week. But if we would see that these gifts are made holy by the Word of God because they have been authorized by the Word of God, I think it would change the way we view God's gifts. How is something made holy by the Word of God? It's because He sanctions it. He authorizes it. He creates it. And we know He's created it because He's revealed it as created by Him. And He says, use this. Enjoy this. Glorify Me with this. It's made holy by the Word of God. And His gifts can be consecrated or made holy for good use. They were created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. God created these gifts to be used and enjoyed by us who know how to use them. We don't think that way. We think that we should just kind of hunker down and that everything's evil and that we just shouldn't let anything touch us lest we become evil. No, He's saying they're to be enjoyed by those who believe and know the truth. Why? Because we know what to do with them. He's told us. And they can be sanctified for the advancement of the kingdom. What does He mean when He says it is sanctified by prayer? I think it means that as we receive everything from God with prayerful thanksgiving, verbal even, thanksgiving, and we ask God to use these gifts in our lives not for our own selfish pleasure, not for our own selfish gain, but for the advancement of His kingdom and His glory, and we receive them by faith, believing that they will do that, they're made holy. They're consecrated. They're sanctified. And there's something mystical about this. You know, it's not like when you pray for your marriage, you're never going to have problems anymore. Amen? And it's not like when you pray for that food that it just it starts glowing or something and you'll never get sick. That, that's not Paul's point. That kind of thinking leads to the blasphemy of the Mass. No, it's similar to when we take the Lord's Supper. Uh, we receive these, these elements that are just 
elements, but we receive them by faith, believing by faith through union with the Spirit that we are actually feeding upon Christ. And as we do that, we're blessed, we're edified, we grow in the Holy Spirit, we're sanctified. And in a similar way, when we receive what God has given with thankfulness and we ask Him to use it for His glory in our lives, we are to by faith see that as a good gift that He's given to us to further His glory in the earth. And as I thought about this week, I don't think I will ever pray for my food in the same way ever again. And a fresh conviction has developed in me over this. You know, men, when we sit down with our families for dinner or for breakfast or whatever it is, and we pray for the food, that is, a, that is an extremely significant prayer. It's a powerful moment if you understand this biblically. You know, we can nonchalantly just mumble some words that we've said a thousand times, not thinking about any of them. Or we can realize that we are with those around us receiving our daily bread from the Lord's hand like a child receiving something from his father. And we receive it with thanksgiving and we can humbly give him thanks and ask him to bless that food, to use it for our nourishment so that we can go and do the things he's called us to do in the earth and be a blessing, and advance His glory, and use it for His honor. And we consume that food with a glad heart, not a complaining heart, a glad heart, knowing that it's been consecrated for good use. And it's a good gift from our Heavenly Father. As James tells us, that every perfect gift comes down from above, from the Father of lights. You know, have you ever wondered why, in the New Testament especially, the authors highlight the fact that Jesus and Paul pray before breaking bread. And this just doesn't happen once or twice. This happens multiple times. All four Gospels record the miracle of Jesus feeding the 5,000. And all four record Jesus as praying before He breaks the bread and distributes it to the crowds. And I love how Matthew records this. He says, Then he ordered the crowds to sit down in the grass, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. You know, our communion passage that we read every week. The Lord Jesus on the night when He was betrayed took bread, and after giving thanks, He broke it and said, This is My body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. You remember Paul in Acts 27 on that ship on his way to Rome when there was this terrible storm and the men carry on in suspense for 14 days without eating. And Paul finally summons them all together and he says, look, God's appeared to me. This, an angel from my God has appeared to me and He's promised me all of your lives are going to be spared. He's, he's going to give you all your lives. And it says that Paul, when he had said these things, he took bread and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Or you remember in Acts 2, right after the Spirit had been poured out at Pentecost, it says of the church, and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with gladness and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. That's a fruit of revival. 
receiving food and gifts with glad and generous hearts rather than grumbling and complaining hearts. And just as I close here, I want to make a bold statement for us to think about as we move into a new year. You know, we, we as Christians would enjoy our possessions far more and we would sin with them far less if we would view them as good gifts from our Heavenly Father that He has given to us for our enjoyment, yes, but for the advance of His kingdom, for the furtherance of His glory, not for the propagation of selfishness. And if we would verbally thank Him with our mouths and turn our hearts away from grumbling and disputing and clamoring and complaining over what we want but don't have, we would enjoy our gifts a lot more. And we would give God a whole lot more glory. And we would advance His kingdom a whole lot more. And we would sin far less with the things He's given us. It's, this requires intentionality. It requires a mind change. Because if we're honest, we don't usually receive from the Lord His gifts with thankfulness. Some of us, because of confusion from the way we were discipled, we view them with skepticism. I'm not sure if I should have that or not. I'm not sure if it's evil or good. And a lot of us just complain. I want more or I don't want that. So we grumble and we dispute. And so brothers and sisters, if you struggle to be thankful or you want to grow in cultivating a thankful heart, start with your food. Start with your food. We eat multiple times a day. Thank God for every meal with intentionality and receive it as something that you did not give yourself. He gave it to you. Is a gracious gift for you to receive by thanks. To receive it, to ingest it, to consume it with a generous heart and saying, Lord, you use this food to strengthen me so that I can go and do Your will in the earth. And if you're married, thank God every single day that God has given you a spouse to enjoy, to love, and to to fill the earth with image bearers, and to reflect His Gospel in the earth. Receiving God's good gifts, especially food and marriage, and using them for His glory is essential to what it means to be human. It's essential to what it means to be human. And it's essential to what it means to be a Christian. And so as we come to the table, we remember uh, that God's own Son sanctified Himself for our sake. And He claims to be, from John chapter 6, the true bread that comes down from the Father, from heaven, to give nourishment to the world. And if you're in Christ today, you've received that nourishment. You've received that true bread. And so we would encourage you, if you're in Christ by faith and you've been baptized, uh, please come to the table with us and enjoy uh, the communion supper. If you're not, there are some prayers uh, in our bulletin, I believe in page 2, that you can look through and pray as we come to the table. I take some time to meditate on these things, uh, but above all, I would ask you to be thankful for the Lord and thank God. Thank Him in your heart. Thank Him with your mouth. 
for all that He's done for you in Christ. And when you're ready, come down and receive the elements and return to your seat. And we'll take it together. Let's pray. Oh God, uh, we, we tremble at Your Word and we praise You and we ask You to help us with these things. Help our hearts, Lord, to be able to receive every good gift from You as a good gift and to use it for Your glory. Lord, bless us. Change our thinking when it comes to these things. And above all, we pray that we could be thankful for Christ who gave us life and gives us life. And we praise You as we come to the table. Grow us and sanctify us. In Jesus' name, Amen.